So this morning, we're going to cover as much ground as we can. Again, these outlines are not quite as long, but uh, we're going to want to start with a biblical overview. So as we look at the people of God, and this will get to some of the questions, maybe it was Brian had about... Um, uh, about the apostolic teaching. No, who had that? Yeah, Sammy, was that? Uh, oh, okay. On um, how do we see the Old Testament church built on apostolic, as a category of the church being apostolic. So this will kind of have some good quotes from other uh, sources and authors on that. Um, and yeah, cover how we see the people of God and subsequently the church through biblical history. So, um, okay, Wayne Grudem. Uh, and his systematic says this, even though there are certainly new privileges and new blessings that are given to the people of God in the New Testament, both the usage of the term church in scripture and the fact that throughout scripture, God has always called his people to assemble to worship himself indicate that it is appropriate to think of the church as constituting all the people of God for all time, both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. That would have been a great quote for me to have uh, been aware of to address the question yesterday. Um, but here we are today. Um, and so 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, this is also a, a text that we're going to see over and over. Uh, 1, Peter th- uh, 1 Timothy three fifteen and 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 are wonderful texts about the role of the church and who we are as a people of God. Uh, Peter writes this to the elect exiles. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're going to cover this in a minute, but let me pause there. All of those terms are built right out of Old Testament. Old Testament usage of how the people of God were, uh, were recognized, self-identified, all of that. Peter is pulling straight from there. So he's calling these New Testament convert believers, these Old Testament names and categories, for the purpose. So as we're looking at, um, as we're looking at text, and as you guys are doing sermons and stuff too, um, Hobby doesn't have time to do this now, but uh, the rest of you guys, as you're going through a text, um, you know, being able to diagram what, uh, what's happening. So uh, in this text, you know, you have uh, all of these different names stacked on top of each other. And then you have this clause, uh, I, I think in the original it's gar, or uh, so, so that you may, so for this reason that you may proclaim um, all of these things of who God, what God has done in, in establishing these people is for the purpose that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, what a great start to the morning to to hear Faisal's testimony. Once you weren't a people, once you had not received mercy, but now not only do we receive mercy, but we've been brought in to the people of God. And not just a generic people, but a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and the possession of God himself. That's what we get when we read these verses. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then we get to see the culmination of all of this in Revelation 5, in John's vision. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people uh, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, as we begin to explore this concept of God's people, um, we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but um, it, when we talked about how ecclesiology can sometimes get uh, minored, it's a, it's a doctrine that doesn't get tons of uh, attention and, and love sometimes, but I, I think that it is uh, a totally appropriate comment to say that soteriology and ecclesiology are vitally linked. So God's desire for a people predates sin. You know, he, he creates Adam and then makes Eve to image himself in, in his ownness for a people for himself before sin enters the world. And so before we have a need for redemption and restoration from fallen humanity, we have a God who establishes people. And so, uh, in a real way, ecclesiology, God establishing a people, motivates and predates soteriology, if we can speak from a human perspective. So, this description emphasizes that God's choosing particular individuals and calling them out of the world and gathering them together as his own. And so, this choosing also highlights the fact that the church is not an invention of man. That's important as we're doing apologetics for the church, right? As we meet people who are really hesitant to come to the church, the church, the visible church, our institutional church, Trinity Fellowship Church, is not an invention of man, uh, but rather is something that originates from and is established by God himself. Uh, and that's what we're hoping to see this morning from, uh, from the progression of the storyline of the Bible. Um, and so Wayne Grudem says this, the present church age, which has brought the salvation of many millions of Christians in the, in the church, Lord, let, let there be many more millions, um, is not an interruption or a parenthesis in God's plan, but a continuation of his plan expressed through the Old Testament to call a people to himself. So as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament of God establishing his people, um, there, we, don't, we don't get an interruption uh, in the present church age of what God was doing. We get a continuation of it. So, <clears throat> any questions there on some intro stuff before we jump into how we see this in the Old Testament? All right. Uh, God's people in the Old Testament. James Montgomery Boy says this, Strictly speaking, the church is the creation of the historical Christ, is the creation of the historical Christ, and therefore dates from the time of Christ, but the church has roots in the Old Testament and cannot be understood well without that background. So in the beginning, as we've already talked about, God created Adam and Eve in his image so they might relate with him and rule his creation for his glory. Uh, but quickly, uh, we didn't get too many pages into our Bible before, sin ruined all of that 
uh, in, in, in making them out, cast out of the presence of God. Uh, but God didn't give up uh, and kill Adam and Eve and start over. Rather, he set out to redeem the people that he had created for his image, uh, to bear his image. So Genesis 1 and 2 lay the foundations for the rest of human history. Uh, in the beginning, God's creative activity reached its pinnacle with creation of man, who created in God's image, was made to not only reflect who God was, but have unhindered fellowship with God himself. So the purpose of the creation of man isn't simply to be image bearers of God. It's not less than that by any stretch, but the creation of Adam and Eve was both to bear God's image. You've seen the, you've heard the illustration, I'm sure, of how a king puts up statues of himself as a way to show in his kingdom his ownership and reflect to others who, uh, who he is uh, in, in his character. Um, that's one of the reasons why God has, uh, made Adam and Eve, but the other one is for fellowship with man to God. And therefore, as we look at um, as we look at what's happening in Genesis one and two, we see not only that uh, that their uh, ability to image God is marred, but also their fellowship with God is is hindered. And so, all of the blessings that Adam enjoyed in the garden safety, provision of all good things, human companionship and his wife Eve. The greatest of all of these was divine companionship. I mean, if we just think for a moment about the fact that Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, it's an amazing thought to think of. That they were walking in, in the dew of the grass with all of the different animals, <clears throat> and God himself was walking amongst them. So even after man sinned, though, and lost the privilege of that intimate fellowship with God, God pledged to vanquish the evil that had spoiled this creation and restore mankind to his rightful place in creation and fellowship with God. So we see that in the promises that God would, through the seed of woman, crush the head of Satan uh, or the serpent. And so God gave specific expression to his promise as we fast forward a little bit by revealing himself to Abraham and calling Abraham to himself. And so in Genesis 12, we see God's promised blessing of making Abraham a great nation. <clears throat> now, Abraham would only have a small uh, glimmer and hope of what that uh, realization would be as we start looking at the multitudes gathered around the throne of God in Revelation. Um, Abraham would have no way of having that kind of vision of what a great nation would look like. But nonetheless, we see in the New Testament that Abraham's faith in this promise that God gave, that he would create for him a great nation, um, is God expressing his pursuit to establish a people yet again. And so God pledged to Abraham and his offspring, promising to be their God and to make them his people. So in Genesis 17, 7, uh, as a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant, <clears throat> God says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Joseph, the series on Joseph, Sinclair's Ferguson sermon on Joseph, thank you, um, is what I was talking about. It, it's a great, it, I've listened to it twice, and it's, uh, 
it just teaches you how to look at the quiet hand of God in sovereignty. And if you've ever had any suffering in your life, uh, which I'd imagine all of us can fall into that camp, it is, um, it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful sermon series on Joseph, uh, on Joseph. All right. <clears throat> so um, after uh, God's people show up into Egypt because of Joseph and him uh, having as much stature there as he had, uh, God delivered them and forged them into a nation, the nation of Israel, among whom he would dwell and who would, he, and who would represent him in the earth. So in Exodus 19, uh, God says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you not out of slavery, not into a new place, not out of bondage, uh, to your captors, but have bought, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar from what we just read in First Peter? These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Treasured possession, holy nation, kingdom of priests. So, despite receiving many blessings from God, uh, his presence in the tabernacle and the temple and the possession of the promised land through, uh, through Joshua and the glories of Solomon's reign, uh, Israel continued to rebel and show idolatry and finally brought judgment upon the nation. Nonetheless, even in captivity in overthrowing their temple and all the things that, that God had given to them, God did not abandon his people. He remained faithful to his covenant promises. So during the exile, God pledged to restore the nation to the land and renew the hearts of his people. So Exodus 36, you're going to hear a great sermon on this tonight. God tells his people, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Christians will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is what he's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You shall dwell in the land I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That constant refrain comes. You see how you just read that over and over, Abby? I mean, just so push comes to shove, man. You just read that a few times, and you're good. Um, and, you know, one of the things that is just a fresh illustration of this, uh, of looking at, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. You know, this obviously is not discussing w what physical cleanness looks like. Um, one of the things I've noticed uh, just, just from, from being here is every, you know, uh, Every time I come back in, um, 
you know, just there's construction happening everywhere, which is great. But um, it doesn't matter how often I, I clean my shoes off from any dust. Uh, I'm going to get more dust on my shoes. Um, and, and how much more so in, in ancient Near East, uh, as the audience hears this, as the reader hears this, as the exiled people of God hear this, that they'll be sprinkled clean from all their uncleanness with clean water, they know that temporary physical sprinkling clean and, and having dirt removed is not going to solve any problems. They just have to take two more steps and the dirt comes back. What God is establishing to his people is something brand new where they get full cleansing of their sins and transgressions. And there are so many Old Testament passages. We could go to Isaiah 53 here. We could go to a number of places. Uh, Zechariah 8.8, 8, though, to the exiled people. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. How often have we heard that? I will be, they shall be my people, I will be their God. So after the return from exile and the partial fulfillments of his promises, God promised to act again to dwell personally with his people. So Malachi 1, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly <coughs> come into his temple. So, people of God in the Old Testament, that's obviously a very high-level flyby. Um, but as we now come into uh, the, the promised fulfillment of the Messiah to, to come and crush the head of the serpent. All right, so God's people in the New Testament. Bruce Milne says this. The early Christians saw their historic uh, precedent in the dynamic notion of kahal, uh, which is the Hebrew word for assembly. The people of God assembled in response to the direct calling of God. So the early Christians saw their historical precedents uh, in this, this response to God calling a people to assemble together. So in the, car in the incarnation... God revealed himself most fully and dwelt among his people in the most personal way possible through his son, Jesus Christ. John 1.14, in the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So um, if there was any point where God truly and fully lived and dwelt and tabernacled among his people, uh, Christ is an even greater expression of that than the Ark of the Covenant or the Temple of God. As God looked to dwell with his people in the Old Testament, Christ coming as the incarnate Son of God is an even greater expression of God's presence with us. Um, so after Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2, the church in union with Christ <clears throat> and indwelt by the Spirit now become the divine sanctuary on earth where God dwells. So as we talk about the presence of God being with his people expressed in the old covenant through a pillar of cloud, through an ark of the covenant, through a temple, through the holy of holies and all of the things that go there to the incarnation where God 
the Son comes in His fullness and dwells in tabernacles among His people, then we see in Acts 2 this same notion of God dwelling among the midst of His people, but not through a temple and not through a person, but through the third person in the uh, Trinity, the Spirit, <clears throat> where we now are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this exactly. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So as we see this progression of God's people being established and God's people being intimately connected to God's presence, we now, as the New Covenant community assembly of people, are, as we are individuals and corporately gathered together, we are the temple of God. So, when Christ returns, <clears throat> God's people will once again dwell with Him and experience unhindered fellowship in His presence. Same thing we were astonished by, by Adam and Eve being able to walk with God in the garden is one day going to be our new reality. God's eternal purpose to dwell among a people he has made <clears throat> his own finds its consummation in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21. We just preached this, another sermon recommendation. Jeff Perswell preaching on Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Phenomenal sermon. Uh, this is what Revelation 21 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Quick, quick thing there, just because I re-listened to this sermon on my flight. Um, you know, the sea, if you guys love going to the beach, I love the beach. Uh, love going to the beach. Uh, Jeff said this, when we read this and we see the sea is no more, the rich history of, of what you're reading in Revelation, the sea is not like... There's, there's going to be beaches, I think, in the new, the new earth. Uh, I hope so. I really, I don't think God would withhold a great beach from us. Um, but as we read through Revelation, the sea is, is representative of all evil. So as the dragon stood, he had one foot in the sea. As the beast rose, he rose out of the sea. The sea represents all that is evil and tumult and all, all that is unrighteous. And so in the new heaven and the new earth, the first uh, heaven and the first earth had passed away connected to this sea of chaos and sin. And this is what John saw. And he saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Is that how you think of the, the, the church being, is, is our preparation is, is both militant, where we're fighting, uh, but it's also a wedding preparation. We're in a war, but we're also in, uh, we're in the stages of preparing for walking down the aisle as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't that familiar? That's, what, that's why we're going through the Old Testament, New Testament uh, concepts of dwelling place of God. This is where it's coming. It's coming to the spot where a loud voice from the throne. This isn't an angel speaking in Revelation. The only other time that a voice from the throne in Revelation is referenced is Revelation 1. A voice from the throne is said, and now at the end of the book, 
a voice from the throne is said again. This is not an angel pointing John to looking. This is God himself pointing John to look. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Don't you love your Bible? The, how themes just... For anyone to say that this book just pieced together by, by men and edits along the... This, this is divinely stitched together for us to see themes and revel in how God has put things together. And so as we come and look at the culmination of God's people and God's dwelling with his people, it comes into a spot where God, just as God was personally with Adam and Eve in the garden, God will be personally with us in his presence, dwelling with him. And, and note the personal touch. This isn't just me being in the room with you all. This is not just kind of physical proximity to God. We're bringing with us into this presence and into this relationship even your tears. The personal nature of this is that as we come to the dwelling place of God being with us, he's going to personally look at every one of his people and physically come and wipe away every tear from your eye. So it's not that there won't be any remembrance of sin and of sorrow. Uh, it's not that there won't be any, uh, it's not that there will not be any tears there. It's that the tears that we're, we're going to be bringing tears with us and they're going to be personally wiped away. Um, so tears are in our, I mean, just the thought of that presence and how much sweeter that presence is for us, having been redeemed from our sins and still brought into the people of God, than it even was for Adam when he was walking in the garden without redemption of his sins in view. So how sweet it would have been for Adam to walk in the garden? Absolutely. How sweet is it for us to walk alongside God who leans down with all of the remembrance we have of the times we've offended the Lord sinned against a holy God, and for him not only to walk alongside us like he did with Adam in the garden, but to personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. A couple of other quick points on, um, a couple of other quick points on God's people in the New Testament. Just if you're taking any notes, this, uh, a couple of these things aren't in your outline, but um, when we talked about 1 Peter uh, 2, 9, and 10 of, of Peter referencing Old Testament concepts of the people of God. Um, when he talks about a chosen race that's taken directly out of Isaiah 50, uh, 43. When he talks about a royal priesthood, we already referenced that in Isaiah 9, uh, Exodus 19. A holy nation, uh, Exodus 19, 6. Um, but, you know, we're called in the New Testament saints in Romans 1, 7 and 1 Corinthians 1. Um, we're called elect and beloved uh, from God uh, in Romans 1 and Ephesians 1. Um, all of these things, all these different concepts, sons of God, heirs of God, Abraham, shown up in the New Testament. There is so much continuity of how uh, the Bible sees the people of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Church and 
kingdom. So, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do we understand the kingdom of God and the church of God or the church of Christ? Um, To to try and, and boil it down, the kingdom of God is the rule of God and the sphere of blessing that that, where that rule is realized, um, but God's rule, God rules overall. His rule is acknowledged and manifested differently among uh, different people. And so, as we look at the church being gathered together, and we look at the difference between uh, the church coming together and how the kingdom of God uh, continues and grows, uh, we're able to see. Um, we're able to see that, that the kingdom is the rule of God expressed. So the church equals the people of God, where the kingdom equals the reign of God. So church, people of God, kingdom, reign of God. And so these things should be seen really walking alongside each other a lot, right? So as the people of God are in the new covenant in particular, their hearts are changed. They have new affections and new worships towards uh, towards, uh, towards the Lord, then we're going to see that the reign of God in their lives and their personal holiness and how they seek to, to honor their king um, is expressed in, in the kingdom of God. So as the church is built, the reign of God is going to grow as well. So Great Commission, Matthew 28. As the people of God, we are commissioned to extend the reign of God to all nations. Uh, so through gospel preaching and disciple making. That's what we're doing in the Great Commission of Go Therefore into All the Nations. Um, I. Howard Marshall says this, <coughs> excuse me, the concept of the kingdom of God implies a community. While it has been emphasized almost ad nauseum that the primary concept is that of the sovereignty of kingship or actual rule of God and not of a territory ruled by a king, it must also emphasize, it must be also emphasized that a kingship cannot be exercised in the abstract, but only over a people. Let me say that one more time. It must also be emphasized that a kingship cannot be exercised in the abstract, but only over a people. So the concept of the kingship of God implies both the existence of a group of people who own him as king, and the establishment of a realm of people within which his gracious power is manifested. Um, a lot of people can think of, have, have uh, misconceptions about the kingdom of um, that it's going to look like an earthly realized uh, kingship where uh, there's uh, uh, an actual throne that's established and people physically that are here in this, uh, um, uh, in this, uh, for lack of a better word, dispensation that we're in. I, that, I think that's an over-realized eschatology. Um, and we're, what we're mostly looking at is being able to see that the spread of the church is the spread of the kingdom of God. So there's a lot more that can be said on the church and the kingdom. But let me pause. The church and Israel. Um, so what is, the, the ultimate cl- question is, as we look at biblical theology of the people of God, as we look at God establishing that people through Abraham and then creating a nation of Israel 
And then that being the holy chosen nation through all of the old covenant into the new covenant now where the rule and reign and people of God is, is the net is cast wide. We're going therefore into all nations. What then is the relationship of the New Testament church to Old Testament Israel? Is it a totally separate people? Uh, are, are they to be included in the church? Are we supposed to think of Israel and Jews as a part of the church somehow? Is all of that swallowed up by the church to where uh, we really shouldn't even think of Old Testament Israel at all? We should think of it just in terms of, oh, well, they were the church realized in the Old Testament. Um, it brings up the question of the relationship between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. So on opposite, opposite end of the spectrum would be dispensational theology which proposes there's a distinct discontinuity between Israel and the church, that the church replaces Israel in God's redemptive plan. So whereas you have Israel, now Israel is done, and you have a distinctly new people that have totally replaced uh, God's, uh, replaced Old Testament Israel in God's redemptive plan, um, on the other hand, you have covenant theology that proposes that this is an essential continuity, that there's an essential continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. So that the church represents a renewal of the covenant with Israel and not a replacement of the covenant of his, to Israel. So the key tenet of this theology is there is one covenant of grace throughout the Bible that uh, subsumes all other covenants in Scripture. So covenant of grace that runs throughout the entire, that we see much more continuity between what's happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then there would be a middle ground, which would be where I would land. Uh, and that would contend that while there's only one people of God in redemptive history, so the elect, the invisible church, uh, there is something new about the new covenant. It's not total continuity where we're seeing the new covenant as simply a, uh, a further expression of the old covenant. There is something new about the new covenant and the essential structure and nature of the church versus Israel, most particularly in its nature as a regenerate believing community, which is what we would propose as the church of born again believers being seen as the church versus a mixed people, a mixed nation of believers who trusted in the promises uh, that God gave to the patriarchs and in the law um, with unbelievers uh, and with only a remnant truly saved there. So uh, in the Old Testament relationship <coughs> uh, with God was mediated by kings and priests. So in the Old Testament the covenant, you had this entire sacrificial uh, system with, uh, with, that was mediated through a number of different uh, means, whereas in the New Testament, uh, Jesus mediates our salvation. We have direct access now uh, to God through him. Um, so Jeremiah 31, 34, I think, uh, is, is a great Old Testament verse that projects into the newness of the new covenant. Uh, it says, no longer shall each... Uh, one teaches neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest.
So the church can be seen as neither Jew uh, or Gentile, but as a third entity, a new man, a new person consisting of both Jew and Gentile. Uh, Ephesians 2.15 again, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in, in himself the one new man in place of the two. So there is something new about the abolishing of the law of commandments that he might create himself one new man in the new covenant. Um, so the church is the fulfillment of Israel, the new promise of the Abrahamic covenant. So as God makes a promise to create a, a nation um, in the generations of Abraham, the church is the fulfillment of that promise. Um, so Israel is included in the church. It is not separate uh, from the church. So there is continuity um, between Israel and the church. We, we are united with the true Israel, i.e. all Old Testament saints, those who are saved, bless you, uh, as they in faith look forward to the promise of Christ, which we've talked about. Uh, John 10, I think, is a good way to show this uh, continuity. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So the continuity would be that uh, there that the new there is there were believers in the Old Testament, and there are believers now in the New Testament that we are seen as the people of God. So that's where the continuity is. The discontinuity, though, which, uh, which is what separates us from covenant theology in some ways, is that there is a distinct difference between what the people of God look like in the new covenant, where, where the people are a regenerate community and not a nation or just a grouping of people. So in, in Presbyterianism, which would hold a covenant theology and a covenant of grace, they would look at all people in the church, including unregenerate, and they would say that, as a part of the community of faith, whereas, whereas what I would propose is that the church is not all people who are gathered in the church as a community of faith, but it's regenerate Christians who have shown, them, uh, shown themselves to be uh, regenerate through their testimony in a membership interview that they then are being engrafted into the church as a regenerate people of God. And so that's where some of the discontinuity comes in is that we don't have sort of a wide swath of a, a community mixed with believers and unbelievers, but we have the church, which as best as we can as pastors uh, be made up of a regenerate community where we, we have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the, so the discontinuity would both be that it's not a particular people like it was in the Old Testament, with some exceptions, right, of, of Gentiles who would come in uh, to it, but it's, it is for all tribes, all tongues, all nations. So there's a discontinuity, but really it's looking at what it looks like through the uh, mediatorial system and through the presence of what we have with the spirit of, uh, of, uh, of uh, seeing, uh, walking by the spirit and not walking in a nation. Um, and so th there's where the discontinuity come in. Not only that we have all people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, that is also a part of the discontinuity, but it's also that the new covenant 
brought something distinctly new from the old covenant and that we are we have the spirit of christ and that's really at the crux of what the discontinuity would be um between old and new that's a good nuance it's not that uh that that dispensationalism sees no continuity whatsoever it's that their emphasis is on a complete uh break um in being seen as is totally new they would see obviously some continuity but that would not be the emphasis in any way shape or form whereas covenant theology is really emphasizing that there is a lot more continuity between old testament and new testament in the in how we're expressing the covenant um and they would see discontinuity there too right like we're not uh, the, the, the sign, uh, the temple, we're not uh, showing the sign of covenant through circumcision anymore, but the sign of the covenant of being in the community of faith is baptism, which is why as an infant is baptized, they're marked by baptism uh, as a sign of, just like it was in, in Abraham uh, and the people of God in the Old Testament. So they would still absolutely say there is things that are different. There's discontinuity. We're not doing things the same way that we did uh, in, in Jerusalem, but the emphasis on, is on there, there, is, there, is a, there is a continuity, though, between old and new um, where they're emphasizing. That's a great nuance to be able to add to it. Uh, Romans 2.28, though, is a great verse. Um, the, no one is a Jew who is uh, merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So this is where we're seeing a, a newness of the new covenant. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in the end, the people of God are defined by the relationship to Christ. Israel and their faith in the coming fulfillment of the promise, and the church now in their, in their faith in the actual fulfillment of that promise. I think uh, Erickson in his systematic theology has a good summation of this as well. To sum up, uh, then the church is the new Israel. It occupies the place in the new covenant, which Israel occupied in the old. Whereas the Old Testament, uh, where in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was peopled by national Israel, and the New Testament is peopled by the church. Uh, and I would add the church of all nations. Uh, there is a special future coming for national Israel. However, uh, through large-scale conversion to Christ and entry into the church. Um, and so national Israel, not being uh, from a dispensational standpoint, but from, uh, uh, but from what we see in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so really what we're, what we're wanting to, to show there is that um, in, a, in a dispensational perspective, uh, they're not, they're, they're seeing Israel um, not through sort of a eyes of faith uh, as the people of God, but in, in a nation that is clearly seen as a, a, as a nation that ended in the new covenant where now there's a one man. Um, and uh, so in the new covenant, where now there's a new covenant that's that's expressed, and where, where we would uh, look at is that both in the old covenant and in the new covenant, both Greek, Gentile, Jew um, are 
not seen in light of their nationality, so neither Greek nor Jew, but instead of their, in their faith in Christ. So dispensationalism would still put more emphasis on national identity to Israel um, uh, in, in a way that still recognizes saving faith, but, but in a way that emphasizes uh, national identity and the discontinuity of national identity in Old Covenant versus New Covenant, where, where that middle ground is looking at less of a national identity being the emphasis and more of uh, Greek or Jew being seen as one new man because of a regenerate faith uh, in Christ. So, so there's some nuances there. And I think at the end of the day, it, it, it comes down to what's being emphasized in, in what's happening between the Old Covenants and the New Covenants. Or not, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Singular. Yeah, I, see, I think I see what you're saying. Yeah, so I, I think the, what the difference would be is that even in the Old Covenant, Gentiles, uh, like a Ruth, uh, you know, she, she says to Naomi, uh, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. That, that in the Old Covenant, even people outside of the nation of Israel are connecting themselves nationalistically to the, the people of Israel. And uh, whereas in the New Covenant, we're not connecting ourselves to any, any people of God or nationalistic, like this, this is um, a, a, a community or a nation of faith. We're, we're, we're covenanting ourselves to Jesus as the new man. And so whereas in the Old Covenant, you might have people outside of the nation of Israel engrafted in, but they're engrafting themselves into a country uh, and into a nation that had particular uh, identity, particular rules. And in the New Covenant, people from anywhere are not engrafting themselves into uh, a people defined by law and rules and national identity, but actually into who Jesus Christ is and what we have in, in faith. So there still is discontinuity because even the people in the Old Covenant that are the true elect who, who were saved in heaven will be around the throne of God by the blood of Jesus through believing in the promises to Abraham. They, they're, they're not doing that disconnected from the nation, laws, and rule of Israel. Um, and so even though they're looking forward to the promises of God to Abraham saved by the blood of Christ, that is not in any way disconnected from the people being a nation. Um, whereas in the New Covenant, that, that's where the discontinuity would be, is that we're no longer needing to identify with the nation of Israel. We're still covered by the blood of Christ, but instead of linking ourselves then into uh, a, 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 um, a law system through a nation where we're still having the hope and the promises of God, but living under the law of a nation, we're now living under the one new man, Jesus, as the church uh, in all, all of the other things that we've talked about. So that's where the discontinuity would come in, where even in the old covenant, Someone's not uh, believing in the promises of God and having saving faith where they're elect and disconnected with the nation of Israel. 
in, if they're going to be having the promises of God actually applied into their life and have saving faith, that looked like coming into the nation of Israel. Now, not everyone in the nation of Israel obviously had saving faith, um, but in, in the Old Covenant, people who were going, who, who we're going to see in, in all of eternity brought themselves into the law and nation of Israel. Contradiction in, in what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? No, so I think it, it goes back a little bit, and let me know if I'm getting to your question on this, but I think it goes back a little bit to what we talked about yesterday on defining the church. And so if we define the church as the New Testament uh, community of believers, um, then it's going to kind of be a subset underneath the umbrella of the people of God because it's, it's going to stand alongside um, you know, the elect Israel, uh, Noah, Abraham, all, all those people under, underneath a big umbrella. Now, if, um, if we're working on the church, though, as a more broad term that includes all believers for all time, then that's actually the umbrella that we're working through. So it, it, it depends on kind of how you're defining the terms through it. And if you, def- if you said by church, I mean New Covenant, New Testament community of believers with explicit faith in Jesus Christ of, of Nazareth, then it's a subset underneath the umbrella of the people of God. But if we're defining the church as a more broad level, this is all. This is Adam. This is Abraham. This is Noah. This is Job. Um, then, then we would have to say they were a part of the church, even though obviously we're able to define what what the church is from a biblical theological standpoint much more. Um, uh, yeah, does that make sense? So, so it, yeah, I, I think it's appropriate to say. Um, the people of God as your umbrella and see that as all Abraham and, and Adam and, and everything else. Um, if that's, if, if that's, kind of, and now we're, we are the people of God expressed through the church. Um, but I also think it would be appropriate to say my umbrella is, uh, is the church. And by that, I mean all believers for all times. So it depends on how, how you're defining the term. Yeah.